Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So for those of you scoring at home, uh, the migrant shelters in the city of Chicago proper now stand at 20. That uh, represents about 11,000 Uh, persons in this country illegally or, I guess, technically legally since the federal government is ignoring immigration law Uh, and some are waiting asylum, the adjudication of their asylum applications, some are not. It's a complicated picture. 20 housing 11,000, and then there's two new West Loop sites that are coming online uh, like tomorrow. Uh, One opened yesterday, the other opens tomorrow. 939 West Lake Street, that opened yesterday. 30 North Racine, that opens tomorrow. Both are in Alderman Walter Burnett's, excuse me, Alder Human Walter Burnett's ward. And he's a, he's a little concerned because uh, these are in areas that uh, have a lot of uh, local traffic. Well, I mean, you what know. What kind of traffic? <laughs> uh, it's time for the uh, Gen Zers and Millennials in the West Loop working for Google to share the experience, don't you think? Uh, here is Christina Passion Zayas, who is BLMB COS, Deputy COS, I should say, uh, on um, the situation, giving us a little bit of a stop, look, and listen on this. And, of course, who needs to do more? It's not BLM Brandon. He's doing everything he can. And even though we are opening a shelter every six days, um, we just can't get in front of it. The state has invested over $300 million in this particular initiative. The city has invested $67 million. The federal government, despite it being purely their responsibility, immigration policy, $21 million. Uh, Happy how your $367 million in the city and the state have been spent so far. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 646-36DA, turnkey.pro text line. Guess what I saw yesterday in my neighborhood? A big Garda World truck. And I pulled over and I'm like, why are you here? But it looked like an armored vehicle. It's similar to, you know, an AT, you know, whatever, like a Brinks truck. And he would not say why he was driving around our neighborhood. But well, he, because he's, because I'm part of the group that has a $30 million contract yeah. with the city. That's why I'm driving around. <laughs> okay. It's the well, when are they, they going to pitch the tent? That's what I want to know. Uh, the um, other, the thing that, um, Miss Zayas said, "Yes, this is purely a federal responsibility. It is no, it's, purely, it's not. It's, it's purely a federal responsibility. Now, it's so interesting the the blame shifting, customary. I know that it is, but it's still important to point it out when it occurs. You took it upon yourselves, and you continue to take it upon yourselves to decide what." federal laws will be abided in Chicago and Cook County and Illinois and which will not. You continue to take it upon yourself to say we will work with 
this federal law enforcement agency on this issue and we won't work with this federal law enforcement agency on that issue. So that's policymaking. I, I hate to break it to you. When you declare yourself a sanctuary city and a welcoming city, of course, synonymous, when you declare yourself that, then you're making policy. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And when the federal government allows cities and states to usurp its authority because they've abdicated, well, that's policymaking too. So I, I just want to be clear with this effort to blame shift. We're doing all we can. Where's the federal government to support the lawlessness? Um, Nobody comes to the table with clean hands here. It should be obvious, but I don't know. There are a lot of things that should be obvious that don't seem to be terribly obvious to many residents of Chicago. Something else on this, because one of the Venezuelan uh, migrants interviewed by ABC7, and it was completely one-sided, of course, Chicago Press Corps, just doing hagiographic profiles on migrants in Chicago. There's there's nothing even resembling the, multiple angles to the story. Yes, uh, people that are seeking a better life. And then there's some people that we don't know very much about and they're not behaving well. And then there's uh, uh, people that are sort of somewhere in between. And then there's unaccompanied minors who are missing and we don't know where they are. I mean, there's a lot going on here, but it's all just the, you know, unwashed masses, Emma Lazarus type of coverage of this issue from the Chicago Press Corps, which is completely stilted and, uh, well, gosh, I don't know, has all the classic earmarks of a disinformation campaign. But one thing that uh, one of the migrants said, you know, we're, we, we don't want to be a burden on anyone. We just want to get our work visas, but authorized by the big guy, Mr. Ten Percent. We just want to get our work visas and get to work. Okay, fine. Let me take you at face value. So when you're starting to think about to manage this, since you're committed to being this welcoming city, as you call it, when you start to think about that, so how long do you think city and county and state residents are on the hook for 11,000 migrants, let's say now, let's take their number, getting up on their own two feet and being independent. I mean, uh, yeah, okay, you can get a job. You get a job yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. I, I assume most of the people that have come and are in these shelters in Chicago that have been stood up don't come with a lot of resources. They probably had, many have had to spend them to get over here right, illicitly. Pay mules. And, yeah. and, and perhaps are still paying off the debt, as we've heard those stories before. Uh, you know, that, that's That's part of the story as well. So, so exactly when does it? Do you think you're going to have two months' rent to put down to get an apartment? Well, when does that happen? But uh, why would you be motivated to do that when you're getting three meals a day, clothing, free rides to doctor's appointments, and free schooling? And they'll t- drive in a van your kids to school if they live outside of the district. Yeah, I, I get. It. So well, this is, that's the same way of asking. It's a different way of asking the same question. So. $367 million so far, city and state, according to the city. So that's just a few months in. That's just sort of the summer into the early fall. Again, 11000 with hundreds coming daily. 
what what's the projected tab on this? Taking people at face value, best case scenario, how you get up on your feet to afford living in Chicago. What is that number? What does that look like? How long does that take working a job? Oh, you know, paying, you know, fair wage, finally, thanks to SEIU and so forth. 15, say it's 15, say it's $18 an hour. And you're here with nothing. And you have a family. Yeah. And you need transportation sometimes to get to your job. I don't know. <clears throat> I don't see them ever moving out. That's the thing. All these people are coming and I don't know where, and I don't know where you got 11,000. That's so, so, so the question is, are we going to spend, you know, open-ended billions? Because that's what you're talking about. Uh, to have a running refugee camp. Make Chicago a running refugee camp. That's what you're doing. And maybe the suburbs will join in, too. Some of them seem anxious to do so. Well, you guys so, got to help out in the suburbs. So is that is that is that the play? Or is it just going to be we've done all we could do and then Katie bar the door, whatever happens, happens? It seems to me those are the two realistic scenarios. And neither one of them is very encouraging. Is it? Are they? It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So some Harvard students are having second thoughts about this uh, pro-terrorist attack uh, letter that they signed on to. Four of the initial 34 student organizations that uh, signed on to condemning Israel, suggesting Israel was the cause of the terrorist attack against the Israelis uh, at the hands of Hamas. Four of the 34 student organizations withdrawn their support. Uh, And you have individual members of the Crimson family at Harvard tweeting out, "Uh, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, They signed it without my permission. Please stop harassing us. The statement, for example, of the... uh, Harvard Undergraduate Nepali Student Association, 
I love the identitarian. I mean, come on. Well, Nepalese students. Um, we regret our we regret our decision to co-sign the statement to call attention to the historical injustices of against Palestinians, with an earnest desire for peace has been interpreted as a tacit support for the recent violent attacks in Israel. We deplore the attacks and blah blah blah. Ooh. Deeply saddened by the news, and uh, then they the the fallback position is to say we're you know against the killing of Israelis and Palestinians. Yes, yeah. So the so the fallback position from condemnation of Israel for being victimized by Hamas is to say, well, you know, we're against death, generally speaking, make a, a, a morally equivalent, make make a, what what Israel's response is to the Hamas terrorist attack morally equivalent events. That's the response. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA and then a quick comment. But some of them were at that Palestinian resistance rally. They handed out flyers, they called Jewish people white supremacists, Nazis even. I mean can, are they gonna try and take that back? The uh, she can't. Uh the uh reason this is happening. Please tell me. It's not because they had a change of heart. It's because Bill Ackman, for example, said, I want the names of all these student or the members of these various student organizations because I want to make sure they're unhirable on Wall Street. That's why. That's what oh. the, this is in response to. There's no change of heart here. Uh, in, in point of fact, uh, there was a Google document that was created. Oh, really? Uh, to... Uh, Again, list all the Harvard undergrads who are part of this, who signed on to this, and Google took it down. After less than 12 hours, Google has taken down the site with public information about which student groups endorse Hamas terrorism. Uh, this is from Max Mayer, who's uh, Max Meyer, excuse me, who I think is at Stanford. Anyway, he was tweeting about this, uh, which is how I came upon it. Uh, the disclosure of student groups. These are the student groups, and then you can go from there in terms of the actual individual students who are affiliated with this kind of support. Is that uh, is that turning the tables on the cancel culturists, or is that uh, unnecessarily harassing the misguided youth at Harvard? You know, because we know from Northwestern that 18 to 22-year-olds are just children. They're barely out of the crib. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six da turnkey dot pro text line but but again there's a lot of focus on Harvard right now but you you think this is limited to the Ivy League or to Harvard this was uh, the chanting that was going on just north of us University of Madison University of Wisconsin Madison. We will liberate the land. There you go. We will liberate the land by any means necessary. We will liberate the land. We will liberate the land by any means necessary. Glory to the martyrs, meaning the Hamas terrorists who carried out the attacks against Israeli citizens, unarmed, mainly Israeli citizens. The massacre. Right. They're martyrs. Anybody who died massacring Israelis is a martyr. University of Wisconsin at Madison. How about 
here. It's just like supporting Hitler during World War II. Why would you support Hamas right now? Forever. How, how, how about right here? Let's focus on Harvard. Let's focus on Rashida Tlaib. How about right in your backyard? Niles West. Niles West uh, High School. Walk out for peace and equality. Protesting in solidarity with Palestine. Meet at the Oakton lobby uh, during uh, HR. If the crowd is big, we'll proceed to go outside. Students are encouraged to make posters and dress for the cause. Niles West High School. Niles North. Protest for humanity. This comes to us from Awake, Illinois. That's today. Niles North. Protest for humanity. Same thing. Uh, violence or hate toward Israel or the Jews will not be tolerated, they say. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm, uh, problem is, that's not a bug. That's a feature. A la what's happening at UW-Madison. George in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, those students are getting a taste of their own medicine with uh, not being hired at these uh, high and jobs, uh, you know, just like they chase professors out for when they don't like their views. Thanks for the call, George. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about the staying power, but uh, at least that's making them a bit nervous that there are consequences to some of the positions they take. Hey, you, you have a right to your views and to express your views, and I have a right to say, I don't want somebody with those views in my employ. That's how it works in a free society. Uh, Guy Benson tweeting out about Northwestern. I have obtained an uh, email from a concerned Jewish alumni at Northwestern, as well as a reply from the school's new president, the Dickensian name Michael Schill, you'll remember, from Pat Fitzgerald infamy. Northwestern does not intend to make an institutional statement, is the reply, the official reply about the Hamas terrorist attack against the Israelis. So when Jonathan Greenblatt from ADL was asking where the university presence, well, they're right here, Michael Schill at Northwestern, with a sizable, sizable Jewish student population. Uh, Northwestern does not intend to make an institutional statement. As Guy Benson refers to it appropriately, they don't make, intend to make an institutional statement about the largest single-day slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. But he also notes... And you frequently offers institutional statements about all manner of national and geopolitical controversy. So they're not afraid to wade into these issues. You know, they, um, like so many Jewish groups, happy to issue statements about Black Lives Matter, supportive ones, of course. Well, uh, they were instigating the siege on American cities in the summer of 2020. No problem there. President Schill uh, recently condemned SCOTUS for striking down Racial discrimination in admissions, the Harvard case. Um, here's the, the point, though, uh, the additional point I just want to make about Guy Benson. He and the university are deliberately choosing silence on this. Absolutely right. As a proud alum, I am revolted. Um, as a proud alum, I'm revolted. So uh, this is what I don't understand. Uh, I'm an alum too. And the silence on this issue is completely consistent with just about everything I've seen from Northwestern 
since Arnie Weber left, who was the university president when I was on my way out there as well. So that's uh, three decades, almost. So uh, what exactly were you proud of, Guy, before this? And that's a statement for Guy Benson and uh, alum of Northwestern and all these other universities. Um, Now I'm upset. Now I'm ashamed. I'm sorry, where have you been for the last at least three decades? I mean, it precedes me. Four, five, six decades? No, that's it. Now I'm ashamed. How dare you, sir? What, what have you been watching? In fact, guy, you're documenting why you should have not been proud of Northwestern much before their silence on the terrorist attack committed by Hamas. You just can't pull yourself away. And I'm just using Guy as an example. Guy, you know, he's fine, but whatever. It's like dilettantes. You just can't make the clear statement on what these institutions have actually become. I'm still proud because why? The basketball team? The football team? Some actor who went to my school? What, what are you proud of with what academia has become in this country with few exceptions and you know the schools because we name them they're not that many they represent less than one percent of the several thousand colleges and universities in the country praising the martyrs terrorists at wisconsin this con- condemnation of israel that was coming from harvard that was coming from nyu law the silence, the complicity of via silence, Northwestern. What are you proud of? What are you holding on to? You're making system change that much more difficult with this middling rhetoric that there's something redeeming about these institutions that have completely given over to Leninism or Maoism. Or Marxism, you know, there are gradations there. Everybody's got their particular predilection. But they they are totalitarian indoctrination camps that are producing intolerant totalitarian ignoramuses. What are you proud of? Yeah, I, I know. Some people are able to get out and still think clearly and contribute to society and so on and so forth. I understand. You're not going to get everybody. Some people are going to be too sophisticated to fall into the trap, but not the majority, doesn't seem to me. And the only thing you can threaten them with is we're going to put this on your permanent record so that you can't get a job at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And you think that's some sort of reckoning? Tony in Downers Grove. Well, Dan, this this is certainly not surprising. And I just got to say, you know, I listened to Biden's speech yesterday, and this shill, this Chauncey the Gardener, this phony, that of course he has to stand up there and I'm behind Israel, and we have to do things now. I'm surprised they haven't blamed us on Trump yet because he put he put that coalition together. Now on the campuses, this is, I'm sorry, and and. We could take this as me being racist, but it's not. We have a Muslim problem here in our country, and we could see it. 
we could see it with protest, protest in some of the neighborhoods. And we better wake up. And I wonder if these people are going to be put on watch lists, the ones that are out there openly calling for death to Israel. Are they going to be put on a watch list? They should be. These communities should be watched. This is not a game. Good luck with the gun control laws. That's all I have to say, Dan. Thanks for the call. I, the, the problem is an ideological one. It's not a religious one. I want to make that distinction. So, yeah, of course it's not all Muslims. It's an ideological one that actually is secular in nature. Yeah, I understand that there's invocations of Allah and so forth with some of these terrorist attacks and martyrs and so forth. But these are political ideologues that are bastardizing faith. And let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, Black Lives Matter Chicago, they apologized, deleted the tweet, the image that, you know, went viral and we talked about yesterday. Yeah, Palestinian paragliders. Uh, Finally took that down to on their Facebook page. Yeah, which said one of the terrorist attackers that was on a paraglider, an image of that, like a caricature of it. We stand with Palestine, Palestine, the people who will do what they must to live free. Uh, They tweeted out, yesterday we sent out messages that we're not proud of. We stand with Palestine, the people, our hearts are with the grieving mothers, blah, 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 blah. But then they went on to say, God, please unharden Israel's heart and help them to stop bombing children and taking over people's homes and building fences. God, please help them see the beauty and peace that can come out of ending genocidal behavior. Um, so Black Lives Matter is you know, a Marxist organization, maybe a Leninist, probably a mix. Most of them probably don't even know the difference. Regardless, you know, they're they hate uh, the nuclear family almost as much as they hate Israel. Remember, so it's it's not Muslim. I'm not for government watch lists and so on and so forth. It's an individual. It's on an individual basis. Um, we don't suspend the rule of law. We have laws that can can contemplate and deal with people who uh, promote violence in addition to committing violence, although we don't seem to be too interested in enforcing those laws in places like Cook County when it comes to something that is not political in nature, fundamentally. But but you understand? You understand what we're dealing with here? And, and what incubates this kind of ignorance? Our school systems send the kid. You know, I'll I'll paraphrase Vody Bacham's. Uh, you send your kids to Caesar schools, and you're surprised when they come back Romans. You send your kids to totalitarian reeducation camps, and you're surprised when they come back as autocrats, totalitarians, and ignoramuses, which of course is a synonym. Uh, but but this so Black Lives Matter. This is the Black Lives Matter, and then. The Jewish or any of those Jewish organizations where you like to withdraw your support for Black Lives Matter, this goes both ways. Stop feeling your way through life. Be a little bit more hard-headed about things. Libby in Munster, Indiana. Well, excuse me. Um, my alma mater is the University of Florida, and the president who just came uh, this winter 
put out a very long statement, and here's just one paragraph from it. I will not tiptoe around the simple fact what Hamas did is evil, and there is no ter- and and there is no defense defense for terrorism. Yeah, well, that's Ben. That that's Ben Sass, the former U.S. senator from Nebraska. I mean, that's one of the few conservative university presidents of any state university in the country. That's the difference, isn't it? Right. He says, sadly, too many people in elite academia have been so I have to scroll have been so weakened by their moral confusion that when they see videos of raped women, hear of a beheaded baby, or learn of a grandmother murdered in her home, the first reaction of some is to provide context and try to blame the raped women, beheaded babies, or the murdered grandmother. In other grotesque cases, they express simple support for the terrorists. And it's a long road. Yeah, right. No, we get the gist of it. Yeah, but right. Unfortunately, most universities, as I said, don't have anyone like Ben Sass as their as their head that's the the issue and that's the point about the culture and what it's incubating and all of this sort of uh scales falling from eyes all of a sudden is really tough to swallow at least for me it's news opinion insight this is chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Big rally for the Palestinians in Chicago yesterday. Yep, the second one since the war began. And uh, the Chicago Press Corps uh, dutifully provided the one-sided coverage it normally does. Abdullah El-Aga, who uh, lost 10, ten family members and allegedly 10 family members in the uh, response to the terrorist attacks from Israel, said this. Gaza has been under total a, a total land, air, and sea blockade for over two decades now. You, you can't expect to subjugate people and brutalize them without them eventually being sick of it and doing something about it. Uh, the subjugation and brutalization of the Palestinians, that was the tenor of the coverage. The rally organizer, uh, a man named Mohammed Sankari from the Palestinian Community Network, uh, offered this. 
Sankari says his wife's family lives in the West Bank. Everybody is uh, living in, you know, for years now, actually, they've been living in fear of the rampage of white European settlers who have gone out on an almost weekly basis, killed people, burned people in their homes, burned people in their cars with impunity. Uh, He has demands. We want the Palestinians to achieve their right to national liberation and self-determination. We want rights for our people. We want an end to the current massacre. And we want an end to unconditional U.S. aid to Israel. This is the muddying of the waters that's being done by, uh, well, the left in this country and amplified by the leftist press corps in this country. For, for more on this, because I just want a response on the merits of what they're saying as we were going through yesterday. Again, you have to continue to respond to the allegations they're making. So the allegation is clearly that this is just built up over time. This is a response to uh, the atrocities of Israel, the subjugation, the brutalization. And if you don't do something about it, at some point it just overflows. And that's what that's their characterization of what occurred. They're trying to justify Hamas's actions. That's what they're trying to do. And they're trying to persuade the public, both having not one, but now two protests. It's just saying that they're the Uh, victims. uh, Hamas, uh, explain what they did. Senior Hamas official named Ali Baraka did an interview on Russia Today. Of course he did, Russia Today. This is what he said, among other things. In the past couple of years, Hamas adopted a rational approach. It did not go into any war and did not join the Islamic Jihad in its recent battle. We made them think that Hamas was busy with governing Gaza and it wanted to focus on the two and a half million Palestinians there and had abandoned the resistance altogether. All the while, under the table, Hamas was preparing for the big attack. Mm -hmm. That's what Hamas is telling Russia today, bragging about it, really, is what they're doing. So um, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board opined, There you have it. Hamas presented the illusion it cared about Palestinians in order to dupe Israel into putting its guard down so they could pursue their main ambition, which is to kill as many Jews as possible. Uh, Well, there's your disclosure. And it sort of runs right into the assertions that are being made by these uh, sort of leftist community organizers of Palestinian extraction in places like Chicago and New York and elsewhere, doesn't it? It also undermines this idea that subjugation, brutalization, self-determination. Um, we pretended we were governing. So that must mean they were credible to the residents of Gaza that this was a part, at least part of the governance structure there, right? Otherwise, how could you sell that we were governing? Caroline Glick is a senior contributing editor at Jewish News Syndicate. She's the host of the Caroline Glick Show on JNS and columnist for Newsweek. Caroline, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. So um, your response to um, sort of the, the comments you heard from some of these rally organizers in Chicago, which, of course, are are um, uh, not, uh, not uh, new to you, and, and they are part of what is being uh, provided in response to the terrorist attack. Well, no, I mean, uh, w- what can I say? Unfortunately, uh, in Chicago, you have people who support uh, the beheading of babies. Uh, you have people who support 
the mass rape and brutalization of women, of children, uh, the torture of families, burning alive of victims uh, just because they're Jewish. They support that. They think that that's totally justified, and they probably are happy about it. I mean, I saw a lot of uh, a lot of these protests in the United States. There was one that was on Twitter yesterday from University of Wisconsin Madison. Yep. People praising murders. Uh, you know that this uh, this is fantastic. These, it's it's troubling to me that uh, you know all these years after nine eleven, the United States uh, has enabled these jihadists to seed inside of the United States and empower them. They can even organize as student organizations at some of America's top universities. And uh, openly and uh, without any embarrassment, uh, support genocide. And not just genocide, you know, I was thinking about uh, a lot of people have made the comparison between uh, what we suffered on Saturday at the hands of Hamas, which uh, President Biden rightly referred to last night as worse than, worse than ISIS, uh, and, and what happened on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I think in, in certain ways, uh, what happened on Saturday? I mean, it was it, I would it, it was worse than what happened on 9/11 for for in, in terms of the brutality because what we saw here was pure barbarism that that you couldn't see in the frames in 9/11. You didn't see the faces of the uh, of the jihadist butchers who drove the planes into the World Trade Center. You didn't see their ecstasy as they murdered thousands when they were driving them in. But here we actually. Uh, we saw it. Um, they they uh, they killed their victims uh, face to face. They 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 reveled in it. They were so happy while they were while they were while they were torturing people. They've been bragging about it on social media, and so it's a different sort of it's a different sort of event uh, in that sense. That it's raw, it's real, and and, it, and of course. Um, like September 11th happened in Washington and, and New York, uh, this happened uh, inside of inside of sovereign Israel, and uh, it broke up a lot of delusions here uh, for a lot of people that uh, you could just build a fence and uh, and be safe from from a jihadist regime that indoctrinates its people to have a completely separate, totally different set of values uh, than than we we are accustomed to as. as as human beings, they they worship death, and uh, they they love death. Uh, mothers whose uh, whose uh, whose sons were involved in the slaughter and were killed, uh, they were celebrating. They were passing out sweets because they believe that uh, their sons are now going to be uh, saints and uh, have a wonderful time in in uh, in heaven with Allah. And this is their belief system. They want death. They worship death. And well, we can't really understand that. You know? No, and I, in the places like New York, New York Times, they're not calling Hamas terrorists; they're calling them gunmen, and they're not trying to hide their war crimes by taking victim cell phones, recording the brutal torture, and then publishing it on social media. But I wanted to get your reaction to the Black Lives chapters around the country that are supporting this terrorist attack. Did you see that coming? Again, uh, you know, I didn't see it coming. I wasn't really thinking about Black Lives Matter. It's your problem. But, you know, we have other problems here in Israel. But, uh, you know, as, as somebody who grew up in Chicago uh, and has a lot of family in the city, it, it, it's uh, it's terrifying because you have a hate group 
that openly supports annihilation of Jewish people, among other things. And it's supported, it's financed, uh, it's enjoyed hundreds of millions of, you know, uh, of donations from America's top CEOs, from the top uh, Fortune 500 companies, everybody, and, and the Jewish community in, in Chicago actively supported them, thinking that they were supporting, I don't know, Martin Luther King or something, and they're a hate group. They're, they're a genocidal anti-Semitic group. They're very much along the lines of the Nation of Islam, by the way, whose uh, who's leader, Louis Farrakhan, uh, called Jews that uh, Judaism a better religion, and they said repeatedly that he thinks that Hitler was right, and his only mistake was that he didn't finish the job. So, I mean, you're talking about people who have, whether it's the Palestinian-American groups that are that are celebrating Hamas and attacking Israel now, uh, while we're trying to uh, eradicate this barbarism so that we can live without fear that this will ever happen again. Uh, you know, it, these people have been in, emboldened and enabled and facilitated by by uh, by Americans who who like Israel. You know, we thought that we could just build a big fence and 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 protect ourselves from this and. You guys thought that, you know, there's no difference between good and evil and that everything is relative and that, uh, you know, everybody's entitled to his own opinion and you don't want to offend anybody. And racism is bad, which everybody knows, but it's become this guiding thing. You're not allowed to call out evil because you're afraid that they'll call you racist. Uh, you know, this is, this is something that's happened here. And uh, we've had over 1,300 people butchered as a result on Saturday. And we're going into the largest war, probably. We certainly have the largest mobilization of our forces that we've ever had uh, that uh, we have to win in order to survive. This is a do-or-die moment for Israel. And, uh, you know, if you don't put your house in order as well, uh, like we are, and recognize that there's a very big distinction between good and evil and, and side with good and be good and take serious action against evil to, to, to not only... Uh, you know, you, uh, 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 stay away from it, but defeat it. You know, you, you, you may very well face what we're facing. That's the face of jihad and its enablers. The um, uh, author, Ashley Rinsberg, takes up this uh, 9-11 comparison that's being bandied about. And she says uh, it's more like our October, uh, it's more like our Dunkirk, October 7th, more like our Dunkirk. Um, the reason the 9-11 metaphor falls is, is simple. Israel is in America. The attack on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon was isolated in time. The U.S. had total freedom to maneuver. It could have simply sat out the fight. Israel has no such luxury, neither in geography nor in time. Can the country take a wait-and-watch approach? Um, is, it, is it better? Is, that, is she right? Is it, it more like your Dunkirk moment, Israel's Dunkirk moment, not 9-11? I don't know. I mean, you know, analogies are what they are. This is just another chapter in the endless war against the Jews. And, you know, we thought, a lot of Israelis did, um, that Israel was going to uh, uh, enable us to avoid the fate of the Jews, that as a, as a nation state, that uh, people would look at us and, and, uh, and see that we're just a normal people and leave us alone. And, and what we find is that the endurance of the hatred of our people is uh, something that's almost supernatural, but it doesn't matter what you do. Um, and the unique, there is a unique aspect to, to, to the hatred of Jews. And I think in, in many ways over time, in every era of human history, because we've been around for so many years, 
the fate of humanity at the end of the day is determined by how people view Jews and their haters. And people who understand that, uh, you know, standing with the Jews is the right thing to do, endure and prosper, and those who think that, uh, you know, we had it coming, this genocide thing makes sense, like the people in, in the protests in Chicago are claiming, you know, they go a different way, and, and their fate is generally sealed in that direction. Can you uh, uh, explain or uh, the... the um misunderstanding from those who sort of blithely go along in saying, well, I'm just for Palestinian self-determination. Um, I'm for, you know, ending, well, you, you heard it there, the subjugation of the Palestinians in Gaza. Can you just provide uh, the uh, sort of the reality of that situation? Right. So, you know, uh, Gaza has been sovereign since 2005 when Israel withdrew and evacuated all of its uh, communities from Gaza, expelled 10,000 Israeli civilians from their homes and uh, and left. And the idea, I, I opposed it at the time, as did most Israelis, but it, whatever, we had a certain uh, political uh, reality. And uh, at any rate, the idea was that when left to their own... Uh, um, when left on the, their own, Palestinians would take the opportunity since they say they want a state, and they would build something that is flourishing and, and wonderful. And instead, uh, they built Afghanistan, and um, and that's what we've been facing ever since. And you know, the the, the whole claim that Israel, you know, is besieging Gaza or that it's an open air concentration camp, I think is what they say. It's just an utter lie, and it gets tiresome having to talk about it all the time. But, you know, under, you know, we have, but they are a terrorist organization. They are a jihadist organization. They are controlled by Iran and Qatar. And uh, every single, you know, uh, 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 pound of concrete that goes into Gaza goes not to building uh, uh, buildings and, and schools and factories. It goes to building... Uh, it goes to building uh, bases of operation against Israel, um, uh, missiles, mortars, rockets, everything. And that's what they do with the money, and that's what they do with the supplies. You know, the Americans are giving them money and, and, and to rebuild, and, you know, they built a town. They built a mock-up Israeli village to practice what they did on. You know, it would be interesting to know if USAID funds that went to Gaza for reconstruction were used to build the mock-up Israeli village that they used to practice what they did on Saturday. That would be really uh, interesting I mean, to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, would be a, it would be an interesting thing to check out because the United States gave the Palestinian Authority a half a billion dollars a year, you know, since Biden reinstated USAID. And, you know, the, this idea that they're under occupation is just a lie. You know, yeah, we blockaded the coast because they're a terrorist organization. And by the way, under international law, we're required to do so, but... You know, whatever. They also have the Palestinian Authority that everybody supports and pretends is moderate. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken is planning on going uh, to yeah. Jordan tomorrow. He just landed in Israel today and is meeting with the Prime Minister. And uh, he's going to meet with PLO Chief Palestinian Authority Leader Mahmoud Abbas. I don't know what he's going to say to him because all Abbas has been doing since Saturday, all the his Fatah group uh, has been doing since Saturday, all that the Palestinian Authority has been doing since Saturday is glorifying Hamas and standing with them. The Palestinian Authority itself, the PLO, are acting as Hamas's foreign ministry. You know, the, the, the PLO ambassador at the UN yesterday accused Israel of genocide.
You know, so like this is this is what's happening with the with the vaunted Palestinian Authority that everybody's supposed to support, and basically it's like, you know, you have Nazi A and Nazi B, and and you're saying Nazi B is worse than ISIS, but Nazi A you got to get a state to. I mean, it just doesn't work. So Karen, I don't know what's yeah. going to happen at the end, but you know, we can't. You know, the idea of a two state solution. I mean, I I I've been writing against it forever, but I think it it, it basically just died. What about this Friday? I mean, you have the founding member and the former leader of Hamas. He said that he's calling for a day of sacrifice, heroism, and dedication to jihad. Are you concerned right. with this message that he sent out for this Friday? Yes, I am. You know, you have a lot of, uh, they've been trying to get the Arab Israelis involved with this as well. You know, we're an integrated society. Arab Israelis make up uh, 20% of Israel's population, and, you know, they're, in every aspect of Israeli society, they're fully integrated. We saw that many of them did uh, join forces with Hamas in 2021. And, uh, you know, I think we're sitting on them pretty hard. Their leaders have said that they're not allowed to go in. But, you know, they're getting very incited on social media. And a lot of them are praising what Hamas did. So, yeah, it makes you, it's a, it's a source for concern. Well, one other trope um, I'd like you to address, because it's being bandied about, is the Al-Aqsa Mosque trope. That um, that this is uh, a defense of their uh, their their holy sites that are under assault or or could be under assault by the Israelis. Yeah, whatever. I mean, that's what, another one of their big lies because it's a jihad. So they're always trying to say that we're harming Allah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, I think unfairly Jews are barred from praying at the Temple Mount, which is where they built uh, Al-Aqsa and the ruins of uh, the Jewish Temple, which they, of course, pretend doesn't exist, and they've been going around for years trying to destroy all the antiquities underneath their mosque to blot out the historical record. But uh, Jews and Christians aren't allowed to pray there, and they're holy to both of us. And uh, so instead, we are, we are allowed to, to go up and visit. And so every time that you have a large group of Jews going up to visit uh, the Temple Mount, which is the holiest site in, in Judaism, to have Hamas and the PLO and all of their all of their like-minded jihadists uh, throughout the Muslim world saying that we're endangering Al-Aqsa. I mean, it's all just part of the same thing of promoting jihad, uh, Islamic holy war, which calls for the obliteration of anybody in humanity, first and foremost, the Jews who are not Muslim. And uh, second of all, it's just part of their psychological warfare operations and political warfare operations against the Jewish state and its allies in the free world. Carol, anyway, I, I have to, I actually, yeah, they're calling me yeah. onto the set on television. Car- I, I got to go. Sure. So, Car- Caroline I hope Glick. I've been helpful today. Thanks oh, so yes, much for your time. Always. We appreciate it, Caroline okay. Glick. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. On AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer.
top of the morning, Dan and uh, Amy. The offshore wind boondoggle, a uh, lesser profiled aspect of the Green New Deal gambit. The uh, what is it? They did. The Danish, yeah, I think Danish company, Orsted. Uh, after announcing a potential $2.3 billion write-down on its U.S. offshore wind projects, its CEO said it was inevitable consumers would need to pay more for renewable energy since offshore wind faces cost increase in orders of magnitudes. Well, that's certainly not how it was sold uh, several years ago. And back in 2017, for example... Uh, the claim was made that green energy costs were at a tipping point and had fallen below those of fossil fuels as technology slashed the cost of offshore wind and solar. Yeah, the brave new world was upon us. The uh, Green New Deal, Biden's I'm talking about, backdoor Green New Deal that they call the Inflation Reduction Act, allows offshore wind developers, unlike their on-land, cousins to claim a minimum 30% investment tax credit, an extra 10% if they're if they use US manufactured equipment, and another 10% if they build their projects in quote unquote energy communities. But uh, that hasn't stopped these uh, offshore wind developers like Orsted from demanding more like uh, exemption from the US manufactured equipment requirement to get that 10% bu- uh, benefit. This by the way uh uh, profiled by Jonathan Lesser at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, so who benefits from these projects? He, uh, he writes Lesser, not U.S. taxpayers. They're going to be forced to send, we are going to be forced to send billions of dollars to European firms and the governments that own them. Or that's owned by the Danish government. Not consumers and businesses. They don't benefit. They'll be required to pay even higher prices for electricity, reducing economic growth and causing thousands of jobs. Not commercial fishermen and seafood processors whose livelihoods will be devastated by offshore wind construction and operation of some of the world's most productive fisheries. Not whales. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management recently admitted it can be harmed by offshore wind development, contrary to the proponents' dismissal of links between whale deaths and their development as disinformation. Oh, yeah, all the earmarks. And not the climate, which won't be measurably affected by any greenhouse gas reductions associated with offshore Wind development, as Lesser continues, using an 18th century technology to meet the needs of a 21st century economy is a costly and futile gesture that will benefit the politically connected few at the expense of everyone else. Now we finally find out the reveal who benefits, who benefits with all of these gambits, the politically connected few at the expense of everyone else. It's a story that just keeps getting told over and over and over again. Concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. It's public choice theory 101. And unfortunately, ACT scores are dropping, so fewer and fewer people even understand what the hell I'm talking about. They've been the lowest in 30 years. Phil Kirpin is president of the American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, So um, we were just talking about the offshore wind piece of this story to set up your discussion, which is not dissimilar uh, to the gas-powered cars, which is more relevant to most people's lives. Gas-powered cars, uh, part of the Green New Deal story. 
Yeah, it's pretty remarkable because uh, very similar to what you were talking about there with wind. I mean, there's enormous subsidies now for electric vehicles, uh, just enormous, almost incomprehensibly large. Uh, you know about the $7,500 uh, direct subsidy to the purchaser. Uh, you probably know about the direct $10 billion, $12 billion uh, direct payments to manufacturers. Uh, but, of course, uh, there's also billions for charging stations. There's also... Uh, $50 billion in government-directed, government-guaranteed loans that the Energy Department has in a pot and uh, can choose who gets them, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other things in terms of money. Uh, but with all of that, uh, people still mostly don't want them. About 93% of vehicle sales are still internal combustion engines. EVs are sort of struggling, even with all of that uh, financial support from taxpayers to get up around 7% where they are now. And uh, what's really going to drive uh, you know, the, quote, transition to the extent such a thing happens is not all of that sea of taxpayer money, which is inadequate, even with, oh, by the way, the manufacturers are still taking huge losses on every one they sell, even with all the subsidies. Uh, Ford said they're losing $32,000 on every EV they sell. So, I mean, they're selling the things for over $60,000 each. Uh, even with all the subsidies, they're losing $30,000. Uh, and even with them being sold with massive subsidies and being sold at a loss, people still mostly don't want them. They mostly want internal combustion vehicles. So the key to what Biden's trying to accomplish then is not the subsidies, uh, even with which uh, people still uh, prefer internal combustion engines. The key to it are the mandates. And this is the part that gets talked about less and that is uh, less understood. But this is really the stick that over the next few years is going to get pretty severe. Uh, as I mentioned, we're at about 7% of the Biden administration regulations, which purport to be miles per gallon regulations, but it really are not, uh, because they mandate miles per gallon that no internal combustion vehicles can meet, and they do it on a specific schedule designed to mandate electric vehicles. Uh, there's a schedule embedded in the Biden regulations that says the percentage of EV sales in the whole fleet that need to be every year to meet the requirements uh, of the mandate. And we're at 7% now. They mandate 17% for model year 26, which is right around the corner, less than two years away, 30% for model year 27. And it just goes up from there. They get to 50% in 2030, 67% in 2032. And of course, you know, when they're mandating that these very large percentages, even the ones in the next couple of model years when they hit, when they're mandating that these percentages much higher than people actually want be EVs, that's going to artificially restrict the supply that's available of non-EVs, of internal combustion vehicles, and they're going to become increasingly difficult to find and very expensive. Well, do you think the consumer preference is 90% plus people want internal combustion, but their manufacturers are only allowed to sell you know, a much lower percentage, uh, it's pretty easy to see what's going to happen. Well, do you think there'll ever be a time when the government comes in and tells, you know, automakers you cannot make any more gas-powered vehicles? Uh, well, let's think about that. So the end of the current Biden rule ends in the, year model, in the model year 2032, and it gets to 67% of all vehicles sold need to be electric vehicles. The Biden administration has also granted a waiver to California to set their own standards, and California goes to 100%. They go to the ban that you, that you mentioned in 2035. I think 10 or 11 states have now followed California. It's pretty clear to me that when they keep adding more years to this, let's say Biden gets a second term and you know they do a few more iterations of this and they add 2033 and 34 and 35, they're going to keep going up. You know, they're not going to stop at 67. 
So it's pretty clear that the eventual endpoint is 100% and a prohibition on the sale of internal combustion vehicles. As I mentioned, that's already California's got that on the books, and the states will follow them for 2035. And I think uh, pretty clear that's where that's where Biden's headed. And what's going to happen is uh, people are either going to spend a fortune on these electric cars uh, they are not going to suit them especially well, but they're going to be over $100,000, and they're going to need a huge loan to get them. Or they're going to spend a fortune on the dwindling number of internal combustion vehicles that are still allowed by the government to be sold, and those are going to be over $100,000 also, and you're going to need a 10-year loan or be wealthy to get them. Or what I think most people are going to deal with um, is sort of a Cuba-like scenario where they need to drive used cars forever. Because a lot of people are just not going to be able to afford new cars, period, under the regime that's come. Uh, and, uh, by the way, if you do uh, convert to get ahead of the curve here, as you're saying, to help uh, Biden meet his goals, uh, and you say, well, at least I'll leave $5 gasoline in the rearview mirror, uh, you will, but um, unless you're able to hook your EV up to one of those subsidized offshore windmills, the electricity costs may surprise you. Yeah, electricity costs are rising pretty quickly, and uh, like many things, it's much worse in the blue states than the red states, uh, but electricity costs are up about 30% nationally, and uh, you know, like I said, with a lot of variation by state. Although, you know, you're li- a little bit lucky in Illinois. You're one of the only blue states that doesn't have outrageously high electricity costs, I think, because you still have nuclear plants. Yeah, but most sure in the country. Direction. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you're headed in the direction of higher prices at some point because that's what liberals like. Uh, but the point is, you, your point is absolutely correct. If you put uh, if you put electric vehicles onto a grid that's already supply constrained because of other liberal policies that make it difficult to deploy uh, new electricity generation, then you're not reducing energy demand. You're just shifting the form of it. And you're going to drive up electricity prices and cause shortages of that, which, of course, we're already seeing in California. And by the way, in California, where they've got, you know, something like 40 or 50 percent of all the EVs in the country, they regularly have blackouts and brownouts. They have a very strained electricity grid. They have the highest electricity prices in the country uh, outside of, I think, Hawaii, which is an island. So, you know, they can be excused. Uh, And the solution that they've proposed the solution that the uh, legislature is probably going to pass is uh, not to add more electricity generation, but to make all of the home EV chargers two-way chargers so that when the grid needs more power, they can drain people's cars uh, to power other things, which is just an insane idea, but I think they're headed in that direction. He is Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition as well. Phil, thanks as always. All right. Have a good one, guys. Thanks, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, just talking about uh, all this uh, backdoor Green New Deal stuff, trying to help people understand what you're up against. Let me give you an example. This guy, Chris Packham, he's a what they call across the pond a presenter for the BBC. He's got some. He's an anchor. Yeah, yeah. No, he's got some ecological show. He's oh, a naturalist. Okay. Listen to this um, momentous announcement from Packham, and you have to really see the video to fully appreciate it. But as he's contemplating this big question, you know, it's Chris Packham. You know, uh, waxing philosophic. Uh, you know, serenely contemplating uh, what to do next and. Man's role in the universe. It's it's the most self indulgent 
90 seconds that you're going to see. It's time to make up my own mind and decide if I think it's time to break the law. What are we going to do about it? An overwhelming number of people recognize that we are in danger. They fear for their own lives, their children, frightened for the future of life on Earth. No government, no major political party has ever significantly addressed the issue. They haven't been listening to us, the climate activists. Now, I'm not asking for anyone to break the law. There are so many lawful ways to get involved. Raise your voice. Post a poster, sign a petition, a banner, go on a march, lobby your local MP. However, for me, myself, when significant and obvious danger. So, but I've got to raise my voice. If you're an activist that's already made a decision that yes, you're going to break the law, so long as no one is hurt and there's no lasting environmental damage, then you'll have my support. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> Just such messy attic. Mm-hmm. nonsense this is what you're dealing with and this guy you know has hundreds of thousands of viewers it's news opinion insight this is chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer this is chicago's morning answer with dan proft and amy jacobson on am 560 the answer Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Theodore Dalrymple, uh, writing at europeanconservative.com. When faced with what appears to be a serious problem or threat, people can react in a number of ways. They can face it head on. They can deny it exists. They can claim the problem is no such thing, but rather a blessing. That's not a bug. That's a feature. They can be re- become resigned and apathetic, feeling there is nothing that they can do about it anyway. And they might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they die. Uh, So which is the approach that uh, Europe is taking when it comes to the multiculturalism that spawned mass migration that's changing the demography of Western Europe? And I wonder if uh, Theodore Delripple has any insights on what he's seeing from across the pond uh, when it pertains to Biden policy, Biden's open borders policies here and these big cities that declare themselves welcoming, uh, welcoming places uh, grappling with tens of thousands of migrants that have been sent up from border communities so that the big cities with their stylish viewpoints can live their values. Theodore Dalrymple is a contributing editor at city journal. Senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of many books, including Life at the Bottom and Romancing Opiates. Theodore Dalrymple, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for asking me. So the um, the popularity uh, of the essentially great replacement theory in Western Europe among the hoi polloi, 
but not among the vanguard class. Um, what, 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 give us, give us perspective on that in, in terms of, you know, possible applicability to our own plight here. Well, I mean, it's pretty self-evident in cities like uh, London and Paris that the nature, the, the demographic nature of the population has changed dramatically over the last uh, number of years. It's difficult to say exactly when it all started, but you have only to go on a train, uh, on a metro in Paris or uh, the underground in London uh, to see that it is not at all uh, the city it was demographically uh, uh, 50 years ago. Um, and in fact, you wouldn't know what country you were in, um, except that it must be a country like England or France, because there's no other place uh, where this uh, complete mixture goes on. So that in, a, in the metro, for example, I go in the metro in Paris quite a lot, um, uh, you can see that uh, French people are now a minority. And so the and, and the response to this among the um, well, the, the representatives of the people in public office and the uh, elites and media and academia is the Epicurean response. Well, it's it's partly uh, that it's not happening or that it's a great blessing. And one has to be nuanced about it because, you know, I know lots of, um, of people who've come from Africa and elsewhere who are very good people. So, of course, you can always cite uh, uh, good examples of integration and people being necessary to the functioning of the society. For example, my mother-in-law who lived in uh, Paris, she, she needed carers for the last few years of her life. And all of them were either African or there was one Haitian. And there are no uh, Europeans at all to do that work. So there's a, a kind of benefit from it, or, or they are necessary. Uh, but on the other hand, when you see encampments of of migrants outside the Hotel de Ville, that's the uh, town hall or city hall of Paris, uh, you think this is dreadful. And what is going to happen, of course, one day, well, not, not in the very distant future, it's going to be uh, when the Olympic Games start, these people are just going to be swept up and put somewhere else, uh, Manu Militari. No, no, nobody's going to be worried about their, um, their human rights then. And uh, it, uh, the, the whole situation is tearing Europe apart. Orban, for example, in Hungary is refusing uh, to take his share of, of the refugees. But no one, or, or migrants, I should say, they're not refugees, they're migrants. Uh, no one, of course, is argue, asking the migrants whether they actually want to go to Hungary. The idea of the Europeans is just to put a certain proportion of them in Hungary or wherever uh, without asking them whether they want to go. And this is this is a so-called liberal policy. And there's just not the, the, the enough uh, courage from those with platforms like we see in this country to say, look, this is not xenophobia and this is not about it being anti any particular persuasion of person, ethnicity, country of origin. It's about um, it's about sort of commonsensical rule of law when it comes to um, allowing people into your country and um, the the sort of the the uh, processes and 
a cultural disposition to assimilation. I mean, that, yeah, that, that's no, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to talk about that. Though it's perfectly obvious it's a question, and it's also perfectly not allowable to say in England. And I, I say this: all four, all four of my grandparents were refugees. My mother was a refugee. Her sister was a refugee twice in her life by the age of forty-two. So it's not that I'm against the idea of refugees, but nevertheless. The fact is that there isn't a single refugee arriving in those boats in England because international law says that a refugee should stay in the first country he arrives in uh, that is safe for him. And this cannot possibly be England coming by boat. I mean, France is not an unsafe country. So nobody dares say this obvious thing that there isn't a single refugee arriving like this. What about any Palestinian refugees? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, you mean, are there any, or yeah. what would one do if they came? No, are there? Well, I am sure there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there must be. Uh, what is rather alarming, of course, is that uh, uh, there have been demonstrations in favour of genocide in London and well, elsewhere, not only in London, but also in other parts of the world. Yeah, like Chicago. We're familiar with it. Um, the uh, been an interesting observation here, too, because we see this playing out with the migrants that have made their way to Chicago and the city and the county and the state trying to deal with this influx of people. Uh, you're right. The the um, the outcome of immigration, sort of, of of this particular view, the view of sort of, in our parlance, the proponent of sanctuary cities and states. The outcome yeah. of the outcome of immigration is determined solely by the conduct of the country that receives the immigrants, immigrants, and not at all the unqualities, desires, or conduct of the immigrants themselves. Expound upon that. Well, the idea is that if if there's an unhappy outcome, it must be because uh, the receiving country is ungenerous. And nobody looks to disaggregate uh, the kind of um, uh, ethnic origins of, or, or cultural origins of, of uh, uh, immigrants and refugees uh, and compare their, uh, their success. And, and it's perfectly obvious that in that in a country like France, which has 800,000 Chinese people, for example, um, what actually happens to migrants and refugees depends very much on the kind of people they were when they arrived. And it's a kind of, um, uh, how can I say, arrogance to suppose that the only thing that affects outcome is what we, that is to say the receiving people, do. Well, right. I mean, but that's the left's posture towards all the people that they make their mascots, right? The, that, uh, yeah. You know, the, yeah. Yeah. So, so th- this is um, uh, this is sort of the, the, the 21st century white man's burden uh, approach to uh, policymaking. And it's a, extremely arrogant, actually. It, it's us and the rest. We are truly human. They are not human. They don't make decisions. They don't have prejudices. They don't have any cultural characteristics. They are just putty in our hands. Yeah. And if it turns out badly, then it must be our fault. Yeah. I, know. 
I, we see it. We see it with minorities in this country. I mean, it's the same approach that the uh, rich left uh, has with uh, uh, blacks or uh, Latinos in inner cities. These are magical people. They're our mascots. As you say, they have no agency. We are here to provide for them from a distance. From, from a, keep your distance. Um, provide for them as, so that we can put signs up in our yards that tell everybody what a good person we are. Same thing in Western Europe, right? Yes, yeah. yeah it's essentially the same thing, yeah. And it's a kind of feeling of omnipotence, actually, and omniscience. Um, it's, it's, it's ironic how many people feel omnipotent and omniscious and are functionally illiterate. Uh, you've uh, uh, written about uh, what's happening in the UK with respect to all the money invested in primary and secondary education. And you've got uh, one in six or seven of the adult population that is characterized as functionally illiterate. Uh, and the response, of course, because we're very familiar with that concept of uh, education as well. The, the the response here is, for example, listen to this, get your reaction, and you can uh, provide some British color to it. But the Chicago Public Schools, their um, admissions test for the selective enrollment schools, why aren't all the uh, schools selective enrollment? Great question for another time. But anyway, the test for the selective enrollment schools has been reduced this year from two and a half hours to one hour in order to reduce anxiety for students. We recognize the stress many students and families experience when it comes to admissions testing. So uh, we're going to arbitrarily cut the time of the test by more than half in order to reduce stress and anxiety. There's there's rarely ever any reference to uh, testing somebody's intellectual capacities, developing people's intellectual capacities, particular skill sets that you learn at the K through 12 level in government schools in Chicagoland and in other big metropolitan areas. It's always about anxiety and stress and accessibility and so on and so forth. It's never about performance, uh, retention, skill development, intellectual capacity, promises for success. That's not, uh, I assume, something you're unfamiliar with. No, well, no. I mean, I, I can give a, a small graphic example. When I'm asked to write an article, if I weren't given a deadline, um, I would never write it. Uh, but nevertheless, as the deadline approaches <laughs> and I still haven't done anything, uh, my level of anxiety uh, increases. So uh, does that mean that I shouldn't have been given a, um, a deadline? Of course not. And um, this is, uh, this is uh, I'm afraid, uh, this is one of the consequences of the psychologization of life, if I can put it like this. I mean, Shakespeare said the first thing we should do is kill all the lawyers. Well, I think the, f- the second thing we should do is kill all the uh, psychologists. <laughs> I mean this metaphorically, of course. Of course. But psychology, the study of psychology has been a disaster for civilization. Uh, I wanted to get uh, to one more fun piece you wrote before we uh, have to let you go, Um, and that is about uh, obesity in Britain. This is a particular uh, topic of importance to my colleague here, Amy. I'm Uh, not a fattest. Thank uh, you. No, okay. Yeah, exactly. So that's a qualification you need to to make before you're allowed to talk about this. But um, I I just love the the distillation of uh, the popularity of Ozempic. This, uh, I I guess it's turned into some sort of... uh, 
Skinny Wait, people are taking yeah, it weight too, loss, Dan. weight loss drug. Oh yeah, but um, the, there's a description of Ozempic as serving people living with the over, living with overweight or living with obesity. Living with obesity. Uh, just talk about uh, uh, your reaction to that characterization. Well, of course, that is now the term of art in medical uh, journals, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, criminals live with burglary. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, it, it, it's beyond satire, actually. And it's very dangerous to satirize anything, because if you satirize something, you'll find that within uh, a few months, it's actually official policy. <laughs> Uh, and and then the whole development too, the zeitgeist behind Ozempic now, but to the extent that yeah. uh, there are bad outcomes, we we know how this plays out, and it's not going no. to be culpability uh, of those who uh, ran headlong into the magic pill that's going to take away their uh, responsibility Fatness, to have yeah. to do anything. I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that we we think that if we give agency to people then when things turn out badly for them we're we're actually so hating them that we don't want them to darken our door again so you're either a complete innocent or a complete completely guilty person and of course most of us are somewhere in between the two Theodore Dalrymple, by the way, uh, yeah, happy birthday. Belated, belated yes. happy birthday yesterday. Yeah, thank you very much. A contrib- contributing editor to City Journal, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, author of many books, including Life at the Bottom and Romancing Opiates. Theodore Dalrymple, thank you as always. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Have you ever thought to yourself, America doesn't deserve me? I don't know, but have you ever thought of yourself? Filmmaker uh, Jamila Nuridin did. She did think that. Really? America doesn't deserve me. She's telling people that too? And of she course did, she is. And she did something about it. She uh, packed her bags at the tender age of 39 and uh, left for Costa Rica. Where she lives near an idyllic beach town. Or she lives in an idyllic beach town on the Caribbean coast. That has become a hub for hundreds of black expatriates fed up with life in the United States. She now spends her days working for U.S. clients from chic cafes, leading healing ceremonies at the local waterfall, and trying to figure out exactly who she is outside of an American context. Fed up with racism, many black Americans are leaving the United States is this think piece what constitutes a think piece from the L.A. Times? I'd like to know the real numbers, yes. America doesn't deserve me. America doesn't deserve me. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. 
It's like leaving an abusive relationship, she said, of exiting the United States. Exhausted by anti-black discrimination and violence back home, blacks are building communities in countries such as Portugal, Ghana, Colombia, and Mexico. Is that right? This is a real thing. Black Americans, many of whom were distraught over the political and racial divisions the pandemic years highlighted, prompting their decision to move abroad, a decision that's more than just about saving money or having an adventure. It gave 39-year-olds time to find themselves. No, it gave people a time to question, said Christian Wright, who uh, launched a podcast documenting her move to Lisbon. She now works as a relocation consultant and is helping about a dozen families restart in Portugal. They're mostly black professionals with children, she said, in search of a better quality of life, without the emotional and psychological strain of living in America. Many of those who are leaving are trying to escape their Americanness, yet are also having to confront the power of their dollars and what Miss Wright calls passport privilege. Oh, boy. Passport privilege. Must be difficult when the underprivileged, so they claim, become the privileged where they land. Sharday Davis is a professor, 34-year-old San Diego native. She had enough too, Dan. She's uh, left for Mexico. Mm. There's a lot of expats in Mexico, yeah. She's a professor. I guess she's a professor at the University of Connecticut. Hmm. And she's been on the road for months studying the black exit to countries like Cambodia, Spain, Turkey, and nearly two dozen others. University of Connecticut must have a lot of money. She writes, there are underground railroads that people have created. I've discovered a whole bunch of Harriet Tubman's. Harriet Tubman's in places like Cambodia, Spain, Turkey, Portugal, Mexico, Costa Rica. Those are Harriet Tubman's. People helping black Americans escape this national plantation called America. Huh. I mean, this is, boy, a lot of interviews. It goes on and on and on, the L.A. Times. <laughs> in a related story in L.A., maybe trying to keep uh, black residents of L.A. from leaving, from connecting up to one of these Harriet Tubman's and the developing world to help uh, residents of L.A. escape the slave plantation they live on. Uh, Gavin Newsom has signed into law the Ebony Alert. What's that? Ebony Alert is uh, the first of its kind law in the nation to prioritize the search of black youth gone missing. The uh, law will be used for missing black people aged 12 to 25 because, according to California State Senator Stephen Bradford, data shows that black and brown are indigenous, quoting him, are indigenous brothers and sisters. When they go missing, there's very rarely the type of media attention, let alone Amber Alerts and police resources that we see with our white counterparts. We feel it's beyond time we dedicate something specifically to help bring these young women and girls back home 
because they're missed and loved just as much as their counterparts are. Oh, so you're trying to tell me that they've never had an Amber Alert in the state of California going out for somebody who's black or brown? I really doubt that. Maybe they've all just cooked up with the Harriet Tubmans around the world trying to get black people out of L.A. Because America doesn't deserve them. You know what? I Anybody who says that America doesn't deserve me, I agree with. And please go. She doesn't. Yeah. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also text us at 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, but before you pass judgment on this, walk a mile in their shoes, won't you? Particularly in L.A., you know, that bastion of right-wing conservatism. MAGA country, if you will, like Streeterville. Uh, the um, black residents of L.A. have to deal with another problem that has been underreported, not just that uh, apparently law enforcement doesn't look for black children that are missing. I guess that's the allegation. Yeah, that's what they're, yeah. Hmm. That would be federal and state, right, because missing missing persons or possible kidnappings, you get the federal law enforcement involved in. So the FBI, mm-hmm. as well as lines. local enforcement, yeah. people just ignoring uh, black uh, young people. Children and young adults that go missing. Just ignoring them. That's what's happening. Okay, sure. Um, But they have another problem. What? The uh, birds out there are racist. (laughs) Please tell me how a bird is racist. Inside, excuse me, instead of the sparrows, ravens, common pigeons, and a cooper's hawk, bird watcher spot in Boyle Heights, the manicured lawns and mature trees of San Marino bristled with a very different assortment of birds. There goes a band-tailed pigeon right over there, said one bird watcher. They're a fun group. Uh, turning his attention from a red-tailed hawk. They also recognize acorn woodpeckers, a California towhee, dozens of turkey vultures circling overhead, a dark-eyed junco, a mockingbird, and Anna's hummingbird, and a black phoebe. This is a vivid illustration, according to researchers. The phenomenon by which wealthier and typically whiter areas attract larger and more diverse population of birds. Bird species are remarkably segregated. Okay, can we? This is just craziness. The difference in bird populations is a lasting consequence of racist home lending practices from decades ago, as well as modern wealth disparities, as well as clearly um, the. Woodpeckers, California towhees, turkey vultures, dark-eyed juncos, mockingbirds, and black phoebes are racist. Vestige of white supremacy in the avian kingdom. So, you know, now take that all into consideration, and you ask the question again, if you're a black person, does, um, does L.A., does America deserve you? Do these birds deserve you? Corey and Woodlawn, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, morning, guys. You know, Rush Limbaugh said this a while ago, and I tend to believe him. African Americans are running around like the year is 1862. And I feel the more of these morons we can all float, the better. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Corey, for the birds. Ralph and Rantoul. Hey, good morning. Well, my uh, neighbor down the street, she's not black, but she is of Mexican heritage. And she uh, built a house someplace south in Mexico, 
And she kind of always talked about how great it was to uh, head to Mexico for the winter and so on and so forth. A couple of years ago, after Biden got elected and the borders were turned back over to the narco terrorists, she hitched up her vehicle and her trailer along with her expensive largesse that she brought down there to give away to people and said, I'm driving to Mexico. And I said, you're out of your freaking mind. And uh, I said, it's it's gotten increasingly dangerous. She said, ah, pshaw. So she drove across the border, was immediately kidnapped by the cartel, stripped of all of her possessions, including her giant, fantastic, beautiful dog that they tended to like, because it's kind of one of those big attack dogs, but she's very gentle, turned the dog loose in the desert, drove around with uh, my neighbor, uh, holding her at gunpoint for a couple of hours. I guess they decided that she wasn't worth raping and murdering, and they just let her go. Um, she was eventually reunited with her dog, which was traumatized by the uh, incident. Some people down there found her, and she's really not quite been the same since she came back. I'd almost say, I'm not a psychologist. I'm kind of in the Dalrymple camp, first the lawyers, then the psychiatrist. But uh, she's not quite been the same. It's almost like she's dealing with anger management issues, Dan and Amy. Thanks for the call, Ralph. Magical people and magical places. Mike, Crown Point. Hey, Dan and Amy. I thought this whole situation might make a great reimagining of Casablanca. Uh-huh. Star-crossed couple leave the U.S. being pursued by the MAGA Republicans, and you know they head uh, far off San Jose, Costa Rica. What do you think? Thanks for the call, Mike. I think you've got the, the basis of something there. Uh... Nick, Northwest Side. Yeah, thank you. Uh, good morning to you people. It's nice to hear your voices. Um, there's a farmer's market in my area that one stand, there's a guy who's selling uh, roasted nuts that he has there with different flavorings. And he, I told him he's a black guy. He's from Togo. Uh, I, I, I should have asked him exactly where is it. But it's one of these typical countries where the Europeans colonized it and posed their language on it, which is French in this case. Yes. So I, West, West I Africa. A little bit of, huh? I'm yeah. sorry. Well, it's West Africa, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it? Okay. Uh, and then uh, I go there the next week. It's once a week that I go there to get stuff. Uh, and uh, there's a different black guy there. And I said, hey, uh, what happened to the other guy? Is he okay? So, oh, yeah, yeah, he's fine. He joined the Army. I said, oh, that's something. So he went back to Togo and joined the Army. I said, no, nah, no, nah, he doesn't like it in Togo. He said, he likes it here in America. In fact, he likes it so much, he wants to join the Army. So there, for every story about people who are tired of racism in America, usually these are the ones that have been conditioned by the Democrat Party with their liberal, progressive, extremist views to – to, you know, to be angry about everything and, and don't you work for 400 years. So now it's time to take it easy, get on welfare. I mean, Hey, there's no substitute for just self-respect and working hard. And, 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 and that's about it. So I thank you for taking my call. Okay. Thanks for the call, Nick. Yeah, right. There's definitely the outliers, the LA times, but that's the point of it. It's not that this is representative of black America. It's the point that the LA times wants you to believe it is. That's the point. Sasha, Southside. Yes, hi. I'm just, uh, I'm so fed up with all this uh, nonsense with these Black Lives Matter. 
they've been bottle fed, and they're the ones that are feeding them the bottle, and that's that's the main problem. They've never had a chance or, or just said, you know what, go off on your own. We're constantly giving them everything, and we need to stop doing that. We need to cut that off. Thanks for the call, Sasha. Uh, you know, the this um, reminds me of this thing. I mean, the the, 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 the counterexample reminds me of this op-ed on the Wall Street Journal by uh, a Tuskegee Airman named Harry Stewart from a couple of years ago. This was like on the occasion, I think, of his 95th birthday or something. And uh, so Tuskegee Airman. Um lived through real institutional racism and subjugation, treated unfairly because of his skin color during much of his life. And he also distinguished himself as a combat fighter pilot in World War II. And he said on the occasion of his 95th birthday, America wasn't perfect then and she isn't perfect now, but I was proud to fight for her then and I'd be proud to do it again now. That's sort of the, that's the adult I mean, that's that's like a great representative representation of the American spirit of forgiveness of all sorts of positive qualities. But it's also like the adult position. Nobody they always the false uh, suggestion that people think America is gray is is without flaw and that uh, you know the interactions of 330 million people don't produce uh, some unfortunate events. Of course. Of course, and but the 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 folly is those is is perpetuated by those who think they can wave a wand, or they think there's some utopia waiting for them around the corner in countries that are certainly at least in terms of founding principles much less free. Uh, they're so oppressed. The Harriet Tubman's waiting to take you to Cambodia. Good luck with that. Yeah, text message. Just wait until those people find out the countries they have fled to don't have constitutional protections like the USA. Jim and Crown Point. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought this topic up about the racist birds. The song Blackbirds Singing in the Dead of the Night. Well, why can't they sing in the daytime? Are they just <laughs> for the nighttime? You know, it, it's terrible. Thanks, Jim. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Morning, Dan and Amy. This is what uh, City of Chicago functionaries are saying about uh, the migrant crisis, the setting up of shelters, possibly ten cities. Twenty shelters set up so far. Eleven thousand people. Seven Chicago Park districts. Two more coming online in the West Loop this week. Christina Passion Zayas is BLM Brandon's deputy chief, and she had this to say about the current situation. And even though we are opening a shelter every six days, um, we just can't get in front of it. 
The state has invested over $300 million in this particular initiative. The city has invested $67 million. The federal government, despite it being purely their responsibility, immigration policy, $21 million. In addition to that, uh, you've heard from BLM Brandon, you've heard from Governor Spaulding, both saying this is a stunt by right-wing MAGA Republicans, and uh, it is they who have caused the problems that are afflicting major cities like New York and Chicago and elsewhere with this matter of the migrants. What would Will Hurd say about that? Well, let's find out. Will Hurd is a former congressman for Texas 23, which is a border district, San Antonio to El Paso. Uh, he served for six years. He's a former candidate for president. He recently suspended his campaign to support Nikki Haley. We'll get to that, of course, as well. Will, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. It's always a pleasure to be on. And, and it's, it's crazy that your city officials are, are saying those things about about immigration. Well, well um, I had to remind our governor that the mayor of El Paso is a Democrat, and he sent up seven buses two days in a row. But they don't want to accept the truth because it doesn't fit their narrative. Yeah, well, what should they know about uh, these MAGA Republicans that are inflicting such uh, problems on Chicago? Well, well, the fact that people keep getting fixated on a bus of 40 people here or there, the Biden administration is flying Hundreds of people every day to places like Chicago, New York, Boston. That's why the Biden administration is facing this backlash from blue states and, and blue cities. The, the solution is very simple. Stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. Now, it's, that seems technical. Asylum's real. Asylum is necessary for some people. But we're allowing people to abuse the asylum process. And, and, and wanting to come to the United States to get a good-paying job is not a, a qualification for asylum. You have to be targeted by your government because you're part of a protected class. Like We know where that's happening around the world. And I, I remind people this policy started under President Trump, and then Joe Biden just continued this. And what's even crazier, the Democrats are completely unwilling in Congress to work on streamlining legal immigration because big labor is against that. And so they're trying to get around these systems um, by allowing uh, people to come into the country illegally, giving them work authorizations, which is just going to increase the number of people that want to come here illegally. It's, it's absolutely insane. Well, how does, how and, does, how does, how does, you know, I mean, I know big labor makes deals with the devil here, but like we we're opposed to uh, processes for more legal immigration, so we're going to backdoor you. I mean, it's not like big labor's uh, so unsophisticated they don't understand what's happening that they can't support that either, but they go along with it. And again, I don't understand why, right? Like, because because you're you're Dan, you're one hundred percent right. That's the that's the end. That's the end outcome. So 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 stopping the flow does not require Congress. It is, it is Department of Homeland Security telling the men and women of Border Patrol that you do not have to treat everybody as an asylum seeker. They assume that there is a, you know, you've heard the phrase credible fear, right? People come across, they're told by smugglers, 
hey, I have credible fear back home, and then they have to be processed as as an asylum seeker. And that's where, you know, you go into a, a court, uh, a judicial process that takes like two years, and then you get released into the country. And again, Joe Biden is putting hundreds of people. If you ever come to San Antonio, Texas, and you sit in the, in the airport at night, you can see how they're processing people, and the Biden administration is moving more folks. But, but you know, um, the people in Chicago aren't criticizing Joe Biden for those flights. They want to talk about you know mayors and and now big cities are starting to realize the problem that border communities have been facing mm-hmm. for four years now. Right? A, and and yeah. go go oh, ahead. No, I just want to run the, by this run this by you because um, we lost a, what four hundred thousand residents. How many residents has Illinois lost and New York has lost because of the COVID? Mm-hmm. Do you think that they're moving these people here to fill that gap or to fill that void? Um, I, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen that. You know, I, I think part of this is just they, the uh, Democrats want to be like, we're, we're standing up for people in need, uh, you know, and, and, and use this as a bludgeon against Republicans to say, hey, you don't care uh, about people, right? And then you turn that around and some of these same liberal politicians that, you know, are then, you know, not, you know, uh, talking about Hamas and how Hamas is a terrorist organization killing innocent people, right? It's just, it's just, it's backwards um, by, by, yeah. by some of these folks. But enough um, about Rashida but, Tlaib and company. Uh, um, I want to get to um, the presidential race. Um, so, so you suspended your campaign, you're supporting Nikki Haley. Before we get to Nikki Haley, one of the things you wrote in this piece in the journal uh, is uh, about the fallacies that need to be dispensed with if there's going to be anybody that uh, defeats Trump. Uh, one of them, you said, Ron, just the, one of the fallacies that is that DeSantis can rise from the ashes and beat Trump. Uh, you write, Mr. DeSantis is a flawed candidate who's failed to es- establish himself as an alternative to Trump. Well, the, the second half of that is pretty obvious by the numbers, but why do you think DeSantis is a flawed candidate? Well, look, I, I, I've had disagreements with him on a number of issues on you know, how he views um, um, the the issue of of, of Ukraine, um, this issue that he got in with with Kamala Harris on education, how he handled that. Uh, I think there was an easier way to handle that. Uh, trying to use the powers of the state um, to to force businesses to operate a certain way. You know, those are things that I that I that I disagree with. And and if you go back to last, I guess two summers ago, where everybody thought Ron DeSantis was the heir apparent and he was going to have five hundred million dollars, and this was his locked up. Um, even with those amount of resources, his his um, position has been failing and falling, you know, uh, uh, every day. Um, when you have the most amount of money and you're seeing the significant fall uh, from your polling position, um, I think he has, you know, performed the worst in, in of all the candidates that are here. And some still think that, hey, he, he's going to be able to rise from the ashes. Um, the reality is now, you know, someone like uh, Nikki Haley has twice the amount of money, uh, cash on hand in the campaign. Um, you know, her numbers keep going up, right? She's the only one that has consistently, um, when pulled against Joe Biden um, in the head-to-head, um, has been outside the margin of error. And that's been going on um, for, for, for months now. And so so that's why, you know, I, I want to support Nikki. And look, and we're learning. The, the world is a really dangerous place. It's only getting more dangerous. 
we need people on day one who understand these issues and can come in and uh, and make sure America uh, continues to be strong, that we're supporting our allies, and that we're able to do multiple things at the same time. Uh, continue to help the Ukrainians dismantle the Russian military, um, pr- support our friends in Israel, and be prepared for a conflict, a future conflict uh, with the Chinese government. Uh, okay, but um, I mean, despite Haley having, uh, I, I, I haven't checked that, so I'll take your word for it, that she has more money on hand than DeSantis now. Um, she's still behind DeSantis uh, where it counts. So you're right. I mean, what's happening geopolitically, maybe that provides another opportunity for her as well. But it's not like anybody is making a strong move to secure a clear and away second place as the alternative. So and and if DeSantis and Tim Scott and others still have enough money to continue, you know how this goes. Then they're going to continue at least through Iowa and, and probably New Hampshire. So so the you know, the why for Nikki Haley, from your perspective, I sort of understand. But the how I don't. How, how does this happen? Well, well, so uh, you know, um, I, I'm curious as to to your analysis of the polling. But in a place like New Hampshire, um, she's on the rise and she's outperforming um, Ron DeSantis already. Well, and, but I mean, it's it's they're they're both in the low you know teens compared. I mean, it's, it's still you've got Trump at at you know thirty points ahead that pretty much everywhere at least. So the how well well no so so look here here is here is the analysis in, in a place like new hampshire right? you're gonna have three hundred and five thousand people that are gonna come out to vote um donald trump's numbers like 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 this you know leaders um um positions always soften um at the at you know the closer you get to the election um there's also going to be a number of people there's 40 percent of the folks that are in new hampshire that um, are, are registered are registered as unaffiliated now, that means when they show up to vote they can choose a republican ballot or a democratic ballot the fact that joe biden is not going to be on the ballot uh, in in New Hampshire, because of all the DNC's changes to who they wanted to go first, means there's going to be a lot of center left independents that are going to vote in a Republican primary. That will be this. That will be a larger block than 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 anyone else. That's an opportunity. Those people aren't being um, aren't being. Uh, uh, captured in many of this of the polling uh, that that is being done in a place like New Hampshire. So there's there's a pathway to victory, and, and I'm not questioning Donald Trump is in the lead right now. There's there's no question about it. But but his his um, um, being victorious is not a fait accompli. Well, well, well how, how, but, it's but, not, but, not solidified. But I mean, so but what's the angle? Like, what's the market positioning? How how do you take his lead's not just going to evaporate on its own? So you have to do something. And by the way, New Hampshire, I mean, I know Haley's uh, in the real clear politics average. She's up a couple points on DeSantis, but then you still have Chris Christie lurking around. And he's he's banking it all on New Hampshire, so he's going to stick around. In Iowa, DeSantis is double Haley and, of course, way behind, 35 points behind Trump. I just don't see the market positioning that's, that changes this race. And by the way, we're sitting here in the middle of October. You have uh, six weeks to Thanksgiving and then Christmas and then the Iowa caucus is January 15th. You're, you're running out of time. Look, agreed, and that's why I was trying to set the lead and saying, "Listen, our pathway to victory is has has narrowed, and if we want to make sure that we have a nominee that could win in the general election, it's time for us to start consolidating." And I agree with you. the The, the key time is between Halloween and Thanksgiving, and if moves aren't being uh, made by by that point, 
um, then then it, it, it's, it's going to be difficult in a place like New Hampshire. And if you don't have early victories in one of the first four early states, then it's going to be difficult to, to build momentum going into Super Tuesday. And and so um, I, I don't disagree with with those those premises, but you know the the, the difference is um, you know what, here's here's what was fascinating me being part of this process. New uh, Granite Staters take their role seriously. And even though this is, um, you know, their, their national pastime, there are a lot of people that are still undecided and are still evaluating a lot of candidates. And someone like Nikki Hayden has a great ground game. And I think there's going to be some of these other candidates that, that recognize that um, their, their pathway is not there. And we can't make the same mistake we made in, in 2016. And so, so that's the, that's the pathway. And, 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 you know, I, I disagree with folks that say, hey, throw up your hands. This is already done. We shouldn't try. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying throw up your hands. I just we shouldn't. We I, shouldn't. We I, shouldn't try. I just right? don't I just so. don't understand what the value proposition is and, and how it separates. I mean, how you get rid of some of these candidates. And even if you did, how it closes the gap. And they don't know. They don't necessarily consolidate around whoever get, you know, whoever the challenger is. Some will consolidate around Trump. I mean, I just don't. So. Um, so I, I just I haven't heard a message. I don't get I, I, I don't get an angle. I don't get a play here. You know what I mean? Well, look, look that's like again. I'm not I'm not a spokesperson for, no, for Nikki Haley. It. I get it. And 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 that's something that that Ambassador Haley is going to have to is going to have to put out. But but here here is the thing that that especially now with what's happening in, in Israel, people are recognizing, you know, we're in a dangerous world. National security matters. Everybody, you know, knows about the border and what's happening and how it's impacting communities. And they need people that actually have real solutions to these problems that are not just, you know, trying to say something because it works good in a tweet or whatever the hell well, is on Twitter. I mean, today, you know, the, right? Abra- the Abraham Accords were forged under Trump. I mean, that's something. That's not nothing. Uh, forged by the, the Abraham Accords was an account. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it, but it's still, it's, I mean, it's we're a not Trump saying administration that it's, that's an insignificant. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not. It's not insignificant, right? Um, but but part of the, the chaos and, and and the drama that we have is is la- I think it was last night. You know, Donald Trump's coming out and criticizing uh, Netanyahu, and you know, because of past grievances. Time when you have a potential war that can that can spread in the broader Middle East and bring in more of our allies and it's going to ultimately have an impact on us and have an impact on our economy. The price of oil could potentially go up. If you see um, the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia potentially do something, the UAE told Syria, hey, don't do anything, don't get involved in this. And the UAE doesn't do that unless um, the Saudis are going to be supportive of whatever actions they take. So this is this is this is super complicated, and we, we need cool hands, and that's why that's 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 why I think uh, someone like Nikki Haley would be great, and and ultimately it's going to be the voters' decision. That's what makes America great. And if uh, I mean if Nikki Haley doesn't get there, I think she said she'll support the nominee. Are you in the same camp? If if Nikki Haley's not the nominee, you'll support Trump if he is. Well, I, I've made it very clear I'm not supporting Donald Trump. I, I haven't. I think he's running for president to stay out of prison. Um, not to make America great again, and and that's you know that's always been my position. And the first step was I thought I can be the nominee, and now I'm going to support Nikki, and um, we're going to focus on we're going to focus on that. 
He is Will Hurd, Congress, former congressman from Texas's 23. He served from 2015 to 2021. Former candidate for president. By the way, we don't have time, but I want to get to Are you still on the board of OpenAI? Do you have a... I, I, I was not. When I started the campaign, I, I got off, but I'd oh, love okay. to come back and talk yeah, to AI. I, I do want to... It's going to change things, yeah. Yeah, I do want to yeah. talk about that with you another time. But, uh, Will Hurd, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Email from a listener who offices uh, in... uh, the West Loop, near the uh, one of the new migrant centers that's uh, being stood up this week. Uh, looking down at the new migrant center. Um, let's add that to the morning rat derby, dog excrement everywhere, car break-ins, graffiti, bums and thugs already there. Had an employee carjacked with a gun to his temple recently. Oh, that's great. I have a CCL, concealed carry license, and keep my Glock on my lap as I come and go. Um, the future of our company in the West Loop. Mm. Thinking about moving, huh? Precarious, perhaps. Uh, this too. I mean, if your ire hasn't been stoked enough, Biden administration is deporting a Christian family from Germany who legitimately fears persecution and should qualify for asylum. While, of course, allowing 99% of illegal immigrants to stay in the United States, most of whom likely do not qualify for asylum, as we were just talking about in part with Will Hurd. Uwe, and do you know how I know how to pronounce Uwe? Because you, I heard you, you used your phone. No, I did not, actually. Oh. Uh, I know how to pronounce Uwe, not that I speak German, but Uwe Blob, Center for Indiana back in the day. Remember Uwe Blob on the Hoosiers? Wow. Okay. Uh, Uwe and his wife, uh, Hanneler Romike, uh, you know how I pronounce it, Hanneler? Ow. Hanneler Blob. No, I just made that up. Uh, so, uh, these two from Germany, they fled Germany in 2008 because they were threatened with prosecution and thousands of dollars in fines for the crime in Germany of homeschooling their children. Oh, for homeschooling? Yeah, I saw, I saw it's a beautiful family. Five children. So, they located to Tennessee and filed for asylum. Why is the Biden administration after them? Just leave them alone. This is 2008. They've um, now had two children who are American citizens, two other children who married American citizens. The authorities denied their asylum claim in 2013. That's also instructive for the per, whatever percentage of it is. Does anybody really know of the actual asylum seekers? They applied for asylum in 2008. Their case got denied five years later. What kind of system is that? So now, for another decade, they've been staying here under an indefinite deferred action status. But last month, the Biden administration finally told them they must return to Germany. So here, this is the game that's run in part. The asylum seeker takes five years to adjudicate your case. You spend a decade on deferred action. And then if you're deported, legitimately, I think I agree that this case it should be an exception that there's legitimate legal 
persecution they face for something that we would find objectionable, you know, the prosecution of them for homeschooling their children. So that is political persecution. Anyway, setting that aside. So you're five years to adjudicate the case, a decade on deferred, indefinite deferred action. And then somebody comes in and says, well, okay, uh, time's finally up. Then you have the people around. Well, well, they've been here for 15 years and they're good. citizens. what kind of way is that to operate? Our immigration system. It's no kind of way. Tom Holman is a former acting director of ICE. He joins us now. Tom, thanks so much for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that um, I, you must get frustrated having to repeat the same things over and over again because it's not like so much of this is terribly complicated. But, um, you know, where, where are we at? Uh, 2.2 million this fiscal year and 99 percent have been released into the country. Yeah, to the point you're just making, all these people being released in the country, if you look at the immigration court data over the last 10 years, uh, nearly 9 out of 10 of them lose their case because they simply don't qualify for asylum. I mean, you know, you know, they're not really escaping fear and persecution from their homeland. If they would, they claim asylum in Mexico or Honduras. And when, they need, when they escape their country, have they not escaped that fear and persecution? So they go through several other free countries before they get here. So it's really not about fear and persecution. It's about getting to the United States. So nine out of ten will lose their case. But just like you said, it's going to take years for that case to work its way through. And by the time it gets through and they get ordered removed, they'll have one or two USC kids. And when I was ICE director, I mean, I got called even from Republican senators. Now, why did you remove that person? Right. Who's had two USC kids? Well, he didn't have two USC kids when he entered illegally. He didn't have two USC kids when he when he uh, when old removed. But you know, it took us seven eight years to find him because he went in hiding. Now he has USC USC kids. So, but now he's immune from the law. The court order means nothing. So, the immigration system is screwed up. But uh, you're exactly right. The the millions of people being released in the country they're being released for two reasons. Let me be clear on this. There's two reasons. Number one. It's because they know the, the immigration court data shows nine on time will fail and be ordered removed. The other data point is the DHS life cycle report. That's the DHS secretary's very own report that says this. If you're in ICE detention and you get order removed, you're removed 99% of the time. If you're released and you get order removal and you're a family unit, for instance, you leave 6% of the time. So this administration knows that. That's why they're releasing them. That's why they're not detaining them. They know most will fail. But if they don't detain them, they won't be leaving. Well, how many terror people that are on the terrorist watch list have tried to enter this country, and how many you know gotaways do you think there are? Well, the, the, since Biden's been president, they've arrested 267 off the terrorist watch list, and we got 1.7 to 1.8 million gotaways. These are known gotaways. These are counted on drone traffic, sensor traffic camera traffic, they've been seen crossing the border, but border patrol so overwhelmed with this humanitarian crisis, they couldn't respond because they're in facilities processing. So with 1.8 million gotaways, and here's the scary thing, I, I said this last night, if you got 1.8 million gotaways, border patrols arrested people from 171 different countries. Many of these countries are sponsoring terror. So if they arrested 267, how many of that 1.8 came from the country that sponsored terror? If you think it's zero, then you're ignoring that. I mean, uh, the terrorists have crossed this border. I'm convinced. Well, sure, and and I mean, if you if you're you know in those numbers and and you know the small percentage of people that have been let in as part of that larger group, well, well, so now what what do we you know back during the height of the post 9/11 uh, world? 
we were worried about sleeper cells because of you know what we failed to to uh, discern with respect to the nine eleven hijackers and attackers, and and now we're letting millions of people in, and we don't fear sleeper cells anymore, particularly against the backdrop of what we just saw happen in the Gaza over the weekend. You know, I, I was over there for six months ago, and I was, I was I did a border review because that's that I mean, that's my game. And and six borders, right? They border Egypt, they border Jordan, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and you know two territories: the Gaza and West Bank, controlled by Palestinians. Of course, some of the borders are more sophisticated than others, but the most sophisticated border they had which is more sophisticated than our border in many areas, because many areas we don't have a law, we have very little technology. If they're able to penetrate their border security, what does that say about what they can do to us? Because right now, as we're speaking, up to 70%, seven out of 10 border patrol agents have been pulled off the line to process. The other day in Eagle Pass, they had so many in custody, they pulled every single agent off the line. Get that. 100% of the agents were pulled from the line. So not a single uniform was on that line for a couple hundred miles. So it shows how vulnerable our border is. So that should wake people up. You know, Israel should wake America up that we've got to control the border. We have to secure that border because we we have the right to protect Americans. And and this administration refuses to do that. Well, what about the reversal on the border wall from the Biden administration? Well, the border wall, now now they said they're going to build part of it, but they already sold most of the materials and other materials are out of it. I don't think they're going to build a border wall, but I'll say this. When people want to talk about border wall, border wall works. The border wall that we built on the southern border, it's not meant to 100% stop people. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's a border wall system. You have response capabilities. You have a smart wall. If you dig under it, we know. If you climb it, we know. But what it does is save lives. So like, it's like the most vulnerable, the family, right. women and children, they can't climb the wall. What are they going to do? They're going to go to an area where there's not a wall where border patrol can meet them. And number one, take care of the humanitarian issue. Number two, make sure they don't get away. That was under the Trump administration. Under this administration, you know, they're getting away because border patrol is processing and releasing them under orders from DHS. Right. I mean, the, the, the funneling of people so you can process them. And as you say, they are not doing things that are as dangerous as or more dangerous than they're already doing, making the journey. But. And speaking of the topic, too, if this is, you know, it's always characterized as hard hearted and stuff when in point of fact, you're trying to accommodate, you're trying to prevent people from being put in positions of danger, whether it's with respect to being uh, uh, indentured to the cartels or, or or just the danger of the trip itself. Um, how about the, 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 the still this thing? And I know some House Republicans took this up, but 85, all this uh, children in cages stuff during the Trump years. 85,000 unaccompanied minors. We also, we, the federal government, don't know where they are. Well, that's a good point. And, and the cages were built under Obama administration. I was there. When they were constructed, I was there. Obama was president. But, you know, they say the Trump administration was inhumane, like you just talked about. You know, it's, it's, we're so bad and we're, we're racist and, you know, we're so inhumane. Let me tell you something. Dr. Job Borders did a study on, on, on this crisis. And they've interviewed thousands of women to make that journey. And they said that 31% of women that make the journey through the use of the cartels get sexually assaulted. So let me ask you a question. When, when, when President Trump was a president, he had illegal immigration down 83%, which means 83% less people are coming. How many women weren't being raped? How many children weren't drowning in a river? How many, how many Americans weren't dying of fentanyl overdoses because the border patrol was on the line and vigilant and, and season mark? 
How many women and children were sex trafficked when 83% less people are coming? Under President Biden, where they claim their policy is much more humane, we got a record number of migrants that have died on U.S. soil, over 1,700, a record by far. Over 100,000 Americans dying of, uh, of fentanyl, a drug that flows across an open border. The record, the record number of women and children being sex trafficked in the United States is three times higher than any other year. I mean, so you can't, don't tell me President uh, Trump's policy is inhumane. President Trump's policy saved lives. You just, you know, if you, if you take 83% of cars off the highway to be less highway deaths, I mean, it's just common sense. President, secure borders saved lives. President Trump did that. Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE. Tom, thank you as always. You got it. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.